who is the oldest person you've ever met? I, I've met some folks in their 90s. I remember as a kid meeting someone who was in their 80s, and I thought that was just the oldest someone could possibly be. This, this guy just seemed like ancient to me, right? Uh, maybe you know someone who's, who's close to 100. Maybe you've even met someone over 100. But I would bet with all those folks, if you were to ask them, I bet 9 out of 10 would say that their life doesn't feel like it's been that long. I bet most of them would say their life feels like it's been very short. You know, when I was younger, I used to think, man, if when I get to my uh, 80s, I think I'll be so tired, I'll be ready to go home to be with Jesus. But I know a lot of folks that are that are older, um, they say they still feel like there's things that are left undone. We are, we are frail people, and our lives are so short. In, in this psalm, David calls himself a sojourner, which is a word for somebody who is temporarily living somewhere but can't own land and can't settle down as a permanent resident. And it's interesting because in Psalm 37, we saw this repeated theme of of David asking for God to give him an inheritance in the land. So why is it here that David's speaking about sojourning? Well, really, as we see in this passage, what he's speaking of is how fleeting and short his life is. And so this is the sojourner's song. Um, This is a very personal psalm. It deals with a lot of internal struggles and frustrations that David has, and it reminds us a bit of the book of Ecclesiastes. In the book of Ecclesiastes, there's this key word, which you might remember, which is the word vanity or meaningless. In Hebrew, it's the word hevel. And that word is going to appear here in this psalm, and it'll really shape kind of how we understand this psalm as well. Now, this psalm also has a lot in common with the preceding psalm, with Psalm 38. We saw Psalm 38 was all about God's discipline. It was about how you know David got these wounds from God's hands, and we see the same thing happening in, in this passage, or David's choice to be silent in the face of suffering. So that's also present in Psalm 39. So there's, there's a lot of different connections that we see, but basically this psalm deals with God's discipline in light of man's futility. That's what it's all about. Man's, man's frailty and how fragile and fleeting life is and the reality of God's discipline. So let's start with the heading here before we get into the body of the, the passage. The heading is interesting. It says, to the choir master, to Jedithun, a psalm of David. So the big question is, well, who is or what is Jedithun? So now there's, there's, there's indications in scripture, like in First Chronicles, we see that Jedithun was the name of one of David's lead musicians. So that may just be a way of him saying he's, he's kind of written it and he's sending it over for the musical co- composition to this man, Jedithun. Or maybe some people will speculate maybe this, this name was associated with a certain type of musical style or tune. And so he's saying it's supposed to be set to this tune or to this style. Uh, we can't really be sure. But, um, but there's these words sometimes in these headings that are kind of archaic and we're not sure about. This is one of those. But again, there's that connection with one of his lead musicians from, from other passages. So <clears throat> that's the heading. Let's jump into the body of the text. The first, the first thing we see in this passage is the desire to protest, the desire to protest. So David starts off by saying that he wants to express his frustration, but he's holding it back. Look at verse one. He says, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. He doesn't want to sin in what he says. That's what he's saying here. So he's holding it back. 
and we never know exactly what he's holding back um, because he, when he begins to speak, he's speaking in a way that's that's not sinful. But what may be happening here is that it's probable that he has some sort of complaint about the wicked prospering and about God's justice in the midst of that. But he doesn't want to speak as long as the wicked are in his presence because he doesn't want God's name to be dishonored as he speaks um, these frustrations of his. It reminds us of Psalm 73, 15, where it says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So in that in that Psalm, he doesn't want to speak out of frustration and dishonor God and dishonor um, God's people as well. So maybe the same thing happening here in Psalm 39. He continues in verse two, he says, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. So he's holding back his words and it's getting pent up in his heart. He, his heart is becoming hot. He's, it, that means he's moved to anger. This is the same uh, phrase that's used in, uh, in the laws in Deuteronomy about a, a person who kills someone unintentionally. The person who's, that's their family, their, their, their heart might become hot. In other words, they, their anger is burning within them and they need to lash out or there's the feeling of needing to lash out. So um, he, he's frustrated, he's unsettled, and he needs to speak. It also it kind of echoes Jeremiah 20 verse 9 where it says, if I say I will not mention him or speak anymore in his name, there is in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones and I'm weary with holding it in and I cannot. So this, the, the prophet there is saying how much he needs to speak of God and he, he has this desire to speak that he can't hold in. And so David, as he's frustrated and as he's wrestling with these realities, he begins to feel this overwhelming need to speak. Now, this, this is a good time to just stop and think about our own lives. It is a good thing to speak to God. It's a good thing to speak and to make your needs known to God and even your frustrations known to God. The desire that David has not to dishonor God in front of the wicked is right. There are times when we express our frustrations or um, our, pour our hearts out to God, but it may not be in front of those who are less mature or those who don't know God because they might think that God is not worth following. But ultimately, it's a good thing to voice your troubles to God and your frustrations and even your doubts to God. God is not intimidated by those. And as long as we're seeking not to sin against God, we, we can absolutely speak to him and ask him to help us to work these things out. In fact, like a good father, he welcomes his children to speak to him when we are struggling. What a relief it is to have a God who always hears us and who will act on his behalf. We don't have to stay silent forever in the midst of our frustrations or when we're suffering. So if you have something on your heart, bring it to God. Go and speak to him. He loves to hear you. And that's why we have so many Psalms that express frustrations and, and, and question God and all these things because God invites relationship which means he invites us speaking to him honestly. So the first thing we see in this passage is the desire to protest. And then we see the brevity of life. So the next few verses show the brevity of life. So finally he speaks, look at verse four. 
O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. This is great because this verse, there's a natural progression here. He says, make me know my end, meaning I want to know when my life is going to end or, or that my life is going to end is probably the better idea, right? So I want to I wanna know that there, there is death is ahead of me, that I will one day die or Christ will come again and I'll be taken up to him. There is an end in sight. And what is the measure of my days? So if you know that you're going to die, then you can begin to think in terms of, well, this is the, the general time frame of what I might have left. In other words, you can see just how short your life is when you begin to measure it out and think about how fast that will go. I don't know if you've ever done that with in terms of seeing how many days are left before you know, you'd reach that normal age where someone would die. It's, it's pretty crazy to think of, or I've done it with um, thinking of, of my kids, you know, seeing a chart of, well, if your kid is six years old, this is how many days you have left with your kid before they graduate from high school. It's a, it's a crazy thing to think about how short that time is. And then the third thing he asks is, let me know how fleeting I am. So if you know you're going to die and you begin to think about how long that time frame might be, you realize that you are a fleeting person, that you're going to pass away, that you're going to be gone. And so you begin to have the right perspective on how brief life is. Verse five, he says, behold, you have made my days a few hand breadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. So this idea of a hand breadth is the length of, of four fingers. So that's just like maybe two inches or you know something like that. So this is the shortest measurement that they had back then was measuring by hand breadths. And when we think about the length of man's days, we're not speaking to use our own language. We're not speaking or thinking in terms of miles. We're thinking in terms of inches. That's how short man's life is. It is so brief. It is so insubstantial. He says, my lifetime is as nothing before you. So his own lifetime, his individual lifetime, and then he begins to look at the entirety of mankind. He says, surely all mankind stands as a mere breath, Selah. All, so not, even, not only is he specifically, his life is short, but all of humanity is short. All of humanity is nothing. It's just a mere breath. Even when taken in our totality, humans are still so frail. And we have to remember this. James 4 is, is a famous passage that speaks to the same reality. In James 4, 13, uh, James says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. That perspective is so helpful, right? Especially when he says, what is your life? You're a mist. You appear for a, a little bit and then you vanish. I'm sure we've all seen that, experienced that, right? A mist that comes along or the fog that comes in and it immediately evaporates or blows away. That's what it means to be human. Our lives are short. Verse six of Psalm 39 says, surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. This verse reminds me a lot of Ecclesiastes. The talk of heaping up wealth and not knowing who's going to get it 
That's very much a theme in Ecclesiastes that we see several times. But even here we hear that word uh, vanity or hevel in the, in the Hebrew. We see it when, it when he says for nothing, surely for nothing or for hevel, right? For vanity, for emptiness, for meaninglessness, they are in turmoil. People are, are working very hard. They're getting all worked up and striving, but it's all for nothing. It's all vain. It's all fleeting. The same word had appeared in verse five. I didn't observe it, but when he says a mere breath in verse five, that's that same word, hevel. And then we're going to see it again in verse 11 um, when it says a mere breath. It's the same word again. So this word from Ecclesiastes is coming in here and pointing to just how vain or empty or fleeting life actually is. So not only is life short, he's saying, but humans are unable to accomplish anything of substance in this life, at least taken from a human perspective. So we see here the brevity of life, and then we see the discipline of God. So there's a clear turning point in the psalm here as David begins to focus on the discipline of God. Look at verse 7. He says, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. So his focus is ultimately on God himself. God is the focal point of his desires, and he's the only one who can fix this problem. David is realizing here that that God is the real issue for him. That's what he wants more than anything else, is he wants God, and he wants God to fix his problem. Verse 8, he says, Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. So the transgressions are now in view. So this is the first time we hear it, but it's because of his sin or his transgressions that he's in this predicament. David understands this. He realizes that he's not innocent in all of this. But he asks God to deliver him from from scorn and from shame. He asks God to deliver him from the scorn of the fool in verse 8. That word fool is the word uh, nabal, and this word is the word for a blasphemous fool. So it's the word that's used in Psalm 14, 1, the famous verse where it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So that's the, the Nabal or Nabal, depending on how you want to say it. But So that, that word Nabal is, um, is this word for a certain kind of fool. There's different classifications of fools in the Bible. Here, David doesn't want these evil, wicked fools to rejoice over him. It's also the name of a man, you may know this, but it's the name of a man that David met in his life. He had this interesting interaction with in 1 Samuel 25. This man, uh, Nabal, was married to Abigail, this wise woman, and Nabal, he he is foolish. He um, mistreats David and his men, and so Abigail, his wife, comes and seeks to appease David by giving him a gift of food, and David is amazed by her wisdom. And one of the things she says is, she says something to the effect of, Um, his name is Nabal and basically he deserves that name because he is a fool. So David doesn't want that kind of person, that kind of destructive, foolish person to rejoice over him and to scorn him because of how God has abandoned him. So he's asking God to protect him from those kinds of people. Verse nine, he says, I am mute. I do not open my mouth for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I'm spent by the hostility of your hand. So here is where we see, just like in Psalm 38, the mention of God's hand being upon David in a, in a disciplinary sense. The stroke or the wound is kind of the idea there in verse 10 as well. 
And we see again, David here is not speaking or responding. But in this case, it's not because the enemies don't deserve a response. It's because he realizes that God's the one who has done it. So there's nothing to say because he knows that he is guilty and he deserves this punishment. But he appeals to God, right? Verse 11, he says, when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath, Selah. So here he says something interesting about discipline that is very helpful, I think. He says, when you discipline a man, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. So the word for dear to him is the word for, it comes from the word for covet. So it speaks of a strong desire, um, something that you covet or that you want. And I think the idea here is that God consumes the desires of his people, that he reshapes our desires so that we'll stop desiring what is evil and destructive and begin to desire him more and more. Um, that we're instead of having the wrong lusts or, or coveting things we shouldn't have, that we have desires that line up with God's will. And he says that you consume like a moth those desires. What does that mean? Well, I've seen two views. I'm not really sure where, where to land on this, but a lot of commentators said this speaks of how a moth consumes, right? <clears throat> so it's a, a moth that destroys. Think of Matthew 6, verses 19 and following, where Jesus says, um, don't store up your treasure where, where you know thieves and rust and moth destroy. So the, the moth in that picture is, I, we don't have this in California that I've ever experienced, but in different places, moths will actually eat clothing. It's kind of a bizarre thing, but you'll have holes in your clothing because a moth got into your closet and ate your clothing. So I don't, I don't know what that looks like, but it's a pretty bizarre thing to me. So that could be it, as he's speaking of how a moth destroys precious things, or he's speaking of how a moth itself is destroyed. So, for, a, for example, a moth is such a fragile little creature, right? A butterfly or a moth, they're so fragile that if you were to toss a moth into the fire, they would be burnt up in a second. I assume, because I'm not a psychopath, I don't go around torturing moths. But if I ever get a chance, I'll, I'll, I'll try that out and see what happens. But I would assume if you throw a moth in the fire, it's just going to burn up like a piece of paper, right? Just be consumed in an instant. They're fragile. They're weak beings. So I don't know which it is exactly, but either way, this, the point is the same, that God destroys. Uh, through discipline, he helps to destroy our attachment and our desire for the things of this world and the hope and the trust that we put in them. When God brings misery into our lives and he shows us the consequences of our sin, it's very helpful. It's a blessing from God. And so we shouldn't reject that or think that God has abandoned us because we're going through a difficult time. Often we need that discipline so that we can hold on to God more and turn away from our idols progressively. And then the last thing we see in this psalm is we see the prayer for deliverance, the prayer for deliverance. He ends with this interesting prayer to God. In verse 12, he says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. So again here, he calls himself a sojourner, which is in direct contrast to how he speaks of himself in chapter 37, in Psalm 37. He sees himself here as someone who is just passing through. And his life here is not permanent. He ends with reiterating the brevity of life and reminding himself of how brief and fragile life is. In verse 13, he says, look away from me that I may smile again before I depart 
and am no more. Why does he say, God, look away from me? Doesn't he want God to look on him and give pity to him? Well, when he says, look away from me, he's speaking of God's judgment. He's saying, I don't want you, God, to look at me in judgment. I want you to be merciful to me. So take away your judgmental gaze from me and be kind and gracious to me. And again, it ends with that reminder of life being short before I depart and am no more. Life is short, and so we need God's mercy and his grace. This whole psalm reminds us of Jesus Christ, right? As we've seen through so many psalms that he is the better David, that he fulfills all these things that David is speaking of, we see just like David speaks of here that that Christ's life on earth was very short. It was very brief. He had a very short ministry of only three years. And in human terms, what he accomplished seemed very small and very fleeting. And yet Jesus is the eternal son of God. So he's both an eternal being, right? Eternal person. And yet he also has a very brief and temporary life on this earth. And Jesus, we, as we know, he entered into our frailty, into the fragility of, of life. He entered into our state as a sojourner in order to save us. That's why he did that. And he gives us hope. So as he, as he lives a perfect life in those years on earth, as he's obedient in everything he does, as he dies a sacrificial death for us and then is raised from the dead to an indestructible life, he shows us that what we do here on this earth isn't actually in vain. That even though David's perspective seems legitimate from a human standpoint, he's missing the rest of the story. He doesn't understand what Christ is going to do Um, in his death and resurrection and how that will give hope beyond this fleeting reality of life. In other words, this life we know as Christians is just the beginning. It's just the the first stage in what's going to happen for the rest of eternity. And so we can say with Paul, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So vanity has no place in the human understanding of our work anymore, right? As Christians, we understand that our life is not vain. The work we do is not vain. Why? Not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done, that he's been raised. And so everything that we have, everything we do for his sake will endure in some sense to the next age. And so we look to him. So we have courage to face the challenges of life because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We know what David didn't know. Uh, We can be sure of the end that's going to come because we've been told the resurrection is coming. We've been told how the story ends.